Welcome. This is the Gender-Based Violence Information Management System, or the GBVIMS, the podcast where we talk about safe, ethical, and useful GBV data management and humanitarian settings. I'm Christy Crabtree with IRC, and I'm here with a fellow member of the GBVIMS technical team, Carolyn Masbungi. In the last episode, we talked about an article in Guardian's Secret Aid Worker on the lack of data protection. So we're diving a bit deeper into that topic today. We can think about data protection as the act of protecting personal information and how it's collected, stored, used, and shared. But really, why is that so important? Why is it so important that we highlight and talk about data protection in this work? I think it's important because we collect information all day, every day, whether it's through verbal information in meetings or in conversations with colleagues, with beneficiaries, with communities, whether it's on email or in documents. And the way we do this is not necessarily conscious. And we need to make sure that the way we collect information, the way we store, the way we analyze and share information is in line with the ethical responsibility that we have to protect our beneficiary and their data, our programs, the communities that we're serving. So I guess this is the first one. And that also goes with questioning what data are we collecting? Are we talking about personal information? And that goes beyond just talking about names and address and and other personal identifiers. And maybe we're going to talk about this more. And also, how do we make sure that the information we collect respects the do no harm principle that we have as humanitarians. So even though services are priority and and life-saving services even more in humanitarian response, how do we do that while making sure that what we collect in our work as information, as data, is not going to lead to more harm? And that the way we're going to share it as well is going to be done in in a safe way. So in this regard, Christy, when can we consider that the data we collect is indeed protected? Yeah, I think we can run through a quick list. Here, we're talking about having a clear purpose for data collection. Don't get stuck in that mode of the more data, the better. We'll do amazing things with it because you probably won't. Have a clear purpose for what you're collecting. And then the next one is you need to put limits on it as well. We should only be collecting data that we're collecting in a safe manner Uh, an ethical manner, data that we can actually take action on, and ding, ding, no surprise, data that's consented to. The next one is security. So the information should be secure, protected from unauthorized access, sharing, destruction, loss. Then survivors need to be informed about their rights and their rights need to be respected. I mean, I think we've seen in a lot of organizations, they have some rights document based, you know, buried on their website about survivors' rights to their data and how their data is controlled. But really, people don't really know about that. They're not really informed. And then that means we're also not respecting it. So this is really where it links back to that informed consent piece that we're really talking about what their rights are, and we're really following them. It's not just buried somewhere on a website. And then finally, that we have policies, protocols, practices, implemented and in place that are regulating how we collect this information. And and I think that's really where the GBVIMS fits in. Absolutely. Uh, And I think, as we said before, when you're talking about data protection, you also have to question what data am I talking about? Because 
I have the sense that when we're talking about data protection, we're mostly thinking, yeah, of course, I'm not going to share the name of the survivor, even though, I mean, maybe it's not that obvious, unfortunately. <laughs> but, but it's not only that. Data protection also applies to anonymize and aggregate data. So in the GBVIMS, really what you're sharing at the interagency level are not names or addresses or um, date of birth of the survivor. What you're sharing are statistics, uh, figures related to the overall a number of reported cases to GBVIMS actors. And you could think that this is okay, but even that implies risk. And we know that from um, from several experiences that, that we've had where sharing data at a specific geographical level can lead to the identification of survivors. Or we also had the experience of sharing data in in numbers at the aggregate level with certain actors that lead them to ask for identifying information, uh, putting pressure on organizations collecting that data to share that information. So we know that this implies risk. And so in this regard, Christy, do you think that survivors have something to say about sharing aggregate level anonymized data? Absolutely. I mean, I think everything you said, I, I completely agree with. I think the onus is on us. It's our responsibility to make sure that survivors know that they can control their data. Even when it seems to us like there's very little risk involved, it's our job to inform survivors of that right to control their data. And we say this all the time when we do our trainings on informed consent, but this is really also a key opportunity to aid in the recovery process. When mm -hmm. violence occurs, somebody has lost that power and control. Giving this small piece back to them is something that aids in that recovery as well. So no matter if it seems small or insignificant, it should be somebody's choice because you never know what's going to happen with that. You mentioned this unauthorized or unconsented follow-up. And I think that that's a very real reality, unfortunately, in our field is that somebody sees a subsector setting that uh, they heard about this case of rape and that the person declined medical services. And then someone else pressures that person, even though that doesn't include the name with that data, to harass them enough, essentially, to get the name, and then they want to go to their house and find out what happened. But that's against what the survivor wanted. Maybe there's a reason why they didn't want medical services. Um, maybe they're charging for medical services. Maybe the doctors don't believe what happened to them. We really need to be respecting what the survivor wishes, and it's our job to make sure that they feel comfortable, that they feel informed and comfortable to exercise those rights as well. Absolutely. And so if we really want to, to have a clear data protection policy in our organization, what tools do we have in the GBVIMS to do that? We have a number of tools. I think we have three core tools to get you started. So the first one is a data protection checklist. This is a fairly exhaustive list of questions that you can go through in your organization to make sure that you're considering all of the right points that you need to consider to establish the policies, protocols, and practices for data protection. So this goes through things like records management, as well as staff training, protocols for destruction of data, backing up, laws and country. The second tool we have is the staff data protection agreement. This one is a bit newer. This really makes sure that within your organization, staff are informed about your policies and practices and know that they have to follow them. That sounds really basic, but what we've seen in a lot of places is that field staff aren't informed about this. 
it stays at like a capital level or the managers or coordinators know, but it never really goes down to the field level where I think arguably we see more of the bad practices popping up. Um, and then the last one, Carolyn, the data protection protocol addendum to the ISP. Yeah, this one is a, is a really important one. Um, so the data protection protocol should really cover um, any of the general data protection um, steps that um, you take um, as a GBVIMS actor and that was agreed upon at the interagency level. So um, it makes actors accountable towards data protection. And this is not, this should be adapted to your context. So uh, the content could vary from context to context. But what it says is really, how do you make sure that your paper files and your electronic files are secured? How do you make sure that the way they are stored um, in like locked cabinets, for example, in a, in a room that also is locked? How do you ensure that uh, you have a clear vision of uh, roles and responsibilities in your team about who is going to lock the cabinets, who has access to it, for example? All these things that could confirm indeed that your data is protected. And this is really important to have it agreed upon at the interagency level because we're setting a standard and we are making ourselves accountable for this. And I think one of the things that we often deal with in situations where we work is what happens in situations where security is volatile? Yeah, I think absolutely. That's a, a huge consideration, especially now we're seeing this pop up more and more. We're working in riskier settings. I think the central thing to remember here is that data is not king. Data is not worth more than the services you provide. It doesn't matter more than those. The services are always number one and data comes after that. So there are a lot of things that you can do in a setting to make sure that your data is safe especially in places that have more volatile activity. You can do things like set up an emergency protocol for the data. You can also build this into your ISP. Um, if it's a situation like South Sudan where things are in flux a lot, that might be something that you want to think about preventatively. Uh, you can talk about a data evacuation uh, plan. So what are you going to do um, if you know an attack is imminent at your office? What are you going to do with the data there? Um, what we want to stress out here is that the data shouldn't be more important than staff safety um, or than the services that we provide. That's the central thing here. But there are also other creative solutions that you can think of. Um, we've talked with some um, sites about this um, carbon copy form. So if you need to transfer paper files somewhere, you can have it in a carbon copy form that removes all of the questions. So if somebody got a hold of it, it would just be a bunch of check boxes with no words. Um, so it's really not a danger to anybody. We also have things like mobile applications for data collection. Primero has a mobile application that can collect data. And you can, if you think your tablet's going to be lost or stolen, or um, somebody's taking devices at like a border or checkpoint, you can delete the app and the data on there. So there are some other things that you can do to make sure that um, your, the data is safe, even in situations like that. But really what you need to do here is be proactive about all of this. Um, it's not really enough if somebody calls you and says like, ah, something's happening at the office to like come up with a protocol or a plan right then. It's better mm -hmm. if you talk about these things, even if you don't ever need to activate the protocol. One thing that we're doing in one of our sites that are using the mobile application for data collection is we've made a little card for staff that has the five steps 
that you need to take to delete the app or to delete case information on there, just so that if something happens, they can pull it out of their wallet or purse or backpack. They remember the steps, even though we practice them in training, you know, when you're in a stressful situation, it's good to just have a little handy card there. So that's one thing that I think that we could do as well in secure situations. And in some situations where we work as well, in some countries where we work, we have more challenges when it comes to data protection. And and I'm talking, for example, about data protection laws that go against beneficiaries' right to data protection. So, for example, mandatory reporting laws to medical service providers when there is a, a case of rape that is reported to to one of the of the humanitarian actor or service provider, and that should be done even without the consent of the survivor. And if it's not done, for example, the staff can be ex- criminal sanctions, so is liable to do so. And in this context, sometimes we feel that uh, we don't have the, the choice but to share this data with the government. Um, and of course, I'm not <laughs> suggesting in any way that, that this this law should be disregarded, but I'm saying that talking about data protection and putting the, protect, the data of beneficiaries at the center of our work, which is really the, the principles that we're following when we're talking about survivor-centered approach, means that we have to think about what does the survivor want? Did she have informed consent, share that information or not? And as you said, Christy, be creative about what can be done in order to respect that these wishes of the survivor. So in some countries, it means that you might even decide not to collect some information if you know that this is going to lead to the identification of the survivor, for example, linked to some of these laws. That you, of course, you're going to inform the survivor of his um, reporting laws. All of this is part of your data protection policy and that you should have at your organizational level and at the interagency level as well. And I'm also wondering, Christy, um, how can we make sure that staff know about these data protection policies? Yeah, I think this is also a big opportunity for the GBV sector as a whole. A lot of the times we see this information stays at a higher level and doesn't get distributed out to field staff who really need to be informed about this. So I think this is an opportunity where you can get creative as well. The staff data protection agreement is one opportunity to do this. This is something that could become part of your regular hiring practices. Someone's hired onto the organization. You review the staff data protection agreement with them, which details all of your data protection principles, and they sign off on that. So they're really signing on to and binding themselves to what your organization says are its policies and practices. I think this is also uh, an opportunity where we need to highlight informing people repeatedly. Data protection is something that doesn't always keep at the forefront of people's minds. And I think it's our job to make sure that it stays there. So maybe you have a one pager that discusses the information sharing protocol and the data protection practices that are included there. Maybe you have another uh, webinar that talks about data protection practices within your organization. Um, and then I would say you need to reach out beyond your sector as well. So look at the health sector, look at the legal sector, the ones that you're really collaborating with that are also working with survivors and make sure they're informed about your data protection policies and really what is a bad practice. They need to know what is a bad practice and why we believe it's a bad practice. Informing other sectors is going to be something that's going to be immensely helpful to you to avoid these really poor and harmful data practices from getting out of control in your setting. Absolutely. 
And I think when we're talking about data protection, it's still something very new, and especially in the field of humanitarian work. And so the approach that at least we try to take in the GBVIMS is to make sure that we think about this as a common reflection and as a way to change uh, our set of mind and how we how we look at the data we're collecting, how we question it, how we consider risks, and how we help each other to do that as well. So have that reflection as a group in your organization, with other sectors, with your supervisors as well, and try to really support each other to change that that set of mind that we have uh, looking at the data that we're collected, collecting recklessly, and uh, do that in a way that is more conscious and that is more respectful of our beneficiaries and uh, the community we're serving. I think you said it well, Carolyn, be conscious, make sure you're informed, make sure others are informed, and really always go back to our ethical principles, the reason why we do this, giving survivors back control of their information and making sure the whole process is really survivor-centered. So thanks for listening. As always, be responsible with your data and learn more at gbvms.com. <laughs>